Can everybody take their seats, please? Thank you. If anybody's in the hallway, tell them to come inside and worship Yahweh. Since I'm preaching, I got to listen to what my jaw say. Y'all know there are people that dress up and go to conferences. They call that cosplay. Y'all know I can do this all day. Ain't nothing like hearing Cleveland laugh and everybody else stop laughing. <laughs> Cleveland, one of the OGs. It's the OG section back there. That's what I'm talking about. Rex, Janice, Cleveland. OG section over here. Rowena, Ray, Linda, Steve. Gene, the OG section, Julie over here, the OG section, Carla right there, pillars of the church, every church needs pillars. Most of the time, the people who are up front are considered the pillars of the church. No, we're not. It's those folks, people like that, who go to church for decades, who persevere, who've seen it all, and don't leave when they don't like something and call it church hurt but actually understand that life is, we live in a fallen world, and even the most respected people are going to hurt you. It's just reality. In last week's message, towards the end of the message, I threw a grenade. Everyone heard it. Some even responded to it with a, hmm. But it could have been easily forgotten because it was at the end of the sermon. And usually at the end of the sermon, a couple of things are happening. One, you hungry? Amen. It's church, be honest. Two, you're thinking about what you're hearing and what's convicting you. And many people were thinking about forgiveness and processing where they may need to grow in that area. Three, you know the games are coming on. That's probably more what I'm thinking about. So. But I threw this grenade as a tackle at the end of the message, and in, in hindsight, I realized that it deserves its own treatment. It deserves its own focus because it is a serious issue that affects every Christian. I make a lot of statements about interpersonal relationships because interpersonal relationships are largely where our Christianity is going to be displayed. It's going to be tested. Sure, you can be a Christian by yourself and not be around people a lot, but most of your Christianity will be tested by the relationships you have with other people. How do you react when people sin against you? How do you handle it when people bring things to your attention that you don't like? Relationship etiquette, in large part, is what the Bible addresses more than anything else. All the individual passages that talk about your character, the fruits of the Spirit. Who do you do those fruits of the Spirit for? Yourself? Being in the mirror like, I need to be patient with you today. <laughs> I need to be loving to you today. Some people do that. You are amazing. You are wonderful. Ramses is the best. Ramses. If you know, you know. <laughs> Today's message will be different than the previous three. 
because today's message will be a little bit more instructional. And we're going to answer one question, sort of. One primary question today is, why do you correct people? Why do you correct people? I'm not talking about in the theological, hypothetical sort of, I'm talking about why do you correct people? Why do you bring things up to people? Why do you challenge people? Why do you correct people? We know correction is biblical. It's biblical. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, Paul is talking primarily to a pastor and saying that he, when he's interacting with unbelievers, here's what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. He says this, and the Lord's servant, that usually means a pastor, or elder, shepherd, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So you're supposed to do that, correcting your opponents. These are unbelievers. Correct your opponents, like adjust them, help them understand, uh, no, what you believe is not genuine. And he says this later on in the same letter, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, one of the most famous passages about the Bible. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, 1 Timothy 3, 16, 17. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in both of these verses, the idea of correction has sort of an unbelievers in view and believers in view. So we know that it's biblical to do so. But why do you correct people? Why do you bring the things up that you bring up? Correction is biblical. There's a Greek word for it. Epothonorsis. Say that again. It means correction, improvement, setting right, revision, amendment, correcting faults, restoration. It's biblical. It's biblical. But why do you do it? When you correct your children, your spouse, your pets, your co-workers, family members. Why do you do it? There's a lot of different ways that correction plays out in general. We're supposed to correct because it brings about improvement. We amend. We set right. That's biblical. But there's correction by other means, other names that the Bible uses. They get at the same thing but a little bit more specific. <clears throat> One of them is rebuke. Many of us hear the term rebuke. <clears throat> Second Timothy 4.2, he says this. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Rebuke here means to censure, to speak seriously, to warn, to punish, it means to overcome with a powerful word. 
in the New Testament, outside of describing how Jesus and the few other people rebuke people, the command to rebuke is largely given to pastors. There is no command in any of the New Testament in a credible translation that tells anyone to just rebuke. We read stories of Jesus rebuking these people, or the disciples rebuking this, or Satan, Peter rebuking Jesus, and got rebuked right back. But this is only found, the command of rebuke is only found in Timothy and Titus, which are called the pastoral epistles. He's instructing young pastors on how to lead the church. And rebuke is found there. Pastors are to censure, to speak seriously, to warn, to punish, to overcome with the powerful word. Then there's the word admonishment. We're aware of this word, admonishment. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, another passage talking to pastors. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Admonish means to put in mind, to remind people, to warn, to advise, to instruct, to teach, to reprimand, to admonish. I hate when they put the word in the definition. What does admonishment mean? To admonish. Man, go ahead, man. I'm not looking up to admonish. This is a command given to all believers, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. All believers are supposed to advise, instruct, teach, reprimand. You have the word warn. First Colossians 1, 27 and 28. It says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of all glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see what he said? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why do you warn people? Why do you correct people? 2 Thessalonians 3 Verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him. Be clear. He's saying if people in your midst, in your church, are not obeying what we've written in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There are times when I'm preaching, I might say something like, there are people in this room, and some people are like, wow, Pastor Kurt, that was strong. What am I supposed to do? Try to track down every person that I think this may apply to? No. If you're here, you're going to hear. It's concern. What does warn mean? It means to be named, to be called, make known a divine injunction, to be identified as. 
to make known God's message, to reveal a divine message. It's a command given to all believers. We have reproof. Hebrews 12, 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. We saw 2 Timothy 4 earlier, preach the word, in season now season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This means to bring the light, expose, convince, put to shame, treat with contempt. This is another command seemingly given to pastors. It's only listed four times in the New Testament. It's never a command for the rest of the church. We have words like exhort. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Exhort means to call to one side, to appeal to, to urge to encourage, to entreat, to cheer up, conciliate, to speak to in a friendly manner, to console. This is a command given to all believers. This is generally what it means when we correct. But why do you correct people? You're correcting your children. What's the main concern you have? When you share a thought with your spouse or your coworker, what are you most concerned about? Admonish, warn, instruct, and exhort are all responsibilities for every professing believer in this room. I threw this as a grenade last Sunday and realized I need to jump on top of it. And here's why. Every one of the categories we just looked at, though different in emphasis, all have one goal in mind. There's one goal for all of these. We, on the other hand, we have multiple goals in mind. We have multiple reasons why we correct people. And because it's Sunday, and we try to be honest on Sundays, many of those reasons are not as godly as we think. They're just not, yours included. Because I'm a pastor, it's my job, so I've had to, I've trained myself, I've been here 15 years. I've learned how to do this. But it's a challenge. Believers, in my experience, primarily live between three options. Three options when it comes to the idea of correction. Three options. The first is that believers, some of them, some of you do not correct enough and you enable other people. You're the enablers. You don't correct enough. The second option is some of you correct too much and you exasperate people. You're the exasperators. Sometimes our children respond to being exasperated, not because they're teenagers right. or they're toddlers. 
Sometimes they're exasperated because we just might correct too much. Sometimes people's pushback against us immediately is they're just tired of being corrected by you a lot. So you have the enablers who do not correct enough, the exasperators who exasperate people because they correct too much. And then lastly, you have the people that cannot receive correction that don't. And they're the exonerators because they exonerate themselves from correction when it's brought. The enablers, the exasperators, and the exonerators. Which one are you? Which one of these are you? The enabler, the exasperator, the exonerator. Many of you hope I say D, none of the above. <laughs> Not today, Satan. <laughs> Let's start with the enablers. The enablers say things like this. I, I, I don't like correcting others because it's just awkward. It's awkward. I don't want to. Or I'm just not good at it. I'm just not good at correcting. I just want to, I'm not good at it. I may say it wrong. I might not. There's nothing that you get good at doing it once or doing it never. <laughs> if you can name something that you're good at that you've never done, talk to me afterwards. Let's make some money. That's a side hustle waiting to happen. How to be good at something by never doing it. 1995. These people say stuff like, oh, I just don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to bring things up because I sin too, you know. I'm sinful too. I don't want to bring things up to people. And these all sound humble. They do. But they're often more fear of man than fear of God. These are people who are afraid to correct so they don't correct enough. Or you're so frustrated at people that are not growing because of your correction, you've just given up altogether. It's like, man, whatever. Not knowing that when you do that, you're saying that the grace of God in that person doesn't exist. Like, ah, whatever. Whatever. God loves these people too. Two things almost always happen with enablers. Two things. You'll enable the very behaviors that tempt you to be bitter in the first place. I know people that will not say stuff to people, but are bitter at them for what they do. And the people might not even know that that bothers you. But you don't say anything, and then you're just throwing up wrath against them, bitter at them. Don't ask a question, don't have a conversation, you're just offended because you're enabling it. And you forget that part of imitating the Lord is to bring correction. So not to correct people, especially those in the household of faith, is actually unloving. And throughout the Bible, we see grave consequences when this happens. Let's go Old Testament first. 1 Samuel 2. 
Here's the situation. Eli was the high priest in Israel. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests, but they were wilding. Two priests, they were wicked. They took some of the portions of the sacrifices for themselves, were sleeping with women. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Eli, he didn't correct them. He heard about it and didn't correct them. So here was the consequence. God pronounced judgment on Eli's house stating that his family would no longer continue in the priesthood. And both of his sons died on the same day. Here's what God said in 1 Samuel 2.30. He said, therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You see what he's saying? Eli, you didn't correct your sons, so you despise me. And so I'm going to correct your sons, but I'm going to kill them. Because they are doing wickedness under the guise of being a priest. And you're not saying anything about it as their dad. David and his son Amnon. Amnon, David's son, lusted after his half-sister Tamar, and he raped her. David heard about it and was angry, but he didn't do anything about it. Here's the passage. Listen to this. 2 Samuel 13, 20 to 22. Here's what happens. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. That's crazy counsel after your sister was. But this isn't a message on how to counsel people when they've been. But so Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. The Dead Sea Scrolls have this part. It's, it's Greek Septuagint. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says, it adds this to this verse. But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. So what was the consequence? Absalom, Tamar's half-brother, and another son of David, he killed him. He killed him. 2 Samuel 13, 28 and 29. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be, be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon, and as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. David didn't correct his son. He was angry, but didn't do anything. So the consequences were, he got killed. There are consequences when we do not lovingly correct people when they're in sin. Some of those people go further and further when we could have said something or asked a question at least a long time ago. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul gets a report from Chloe's people that the Corinthians are not doing anything about serious sin in the church. 
And he opens up 1 Corinthians 5 and he says this, beginning verse 1 and 2, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, you got this sin going on in the church and you know it? You're arrogant. You should be grieving over this and you're allowing it. Consequences. In Revelation 2, the church in Thyatira, Jesus said that you all have allowed a false prophet, referred to her as Jezebel, to teach and seduce Christ's servants. Jesus warned that he would cast her into great tribulation and strike down her followers if they did not repent. You better correct this situation. This is what he says in, in Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There are multiple examples in the Bible showing a failure to correct and the consequences that come from it. I just chose a couple because we're bound by time. This is a serious problem in the Bible and in the church. When I think in this church, in this church, many people see stuff, don't say it, they'll come tell me. And then if I end up bringing it up and that person gets offended, why didn't somebody tell me? In many circles, enabling looks like making excuses for people's sinful behavior. Well, that's just such and such. Or you make it about personality. Well, I'm an introvert. I don't know any Bible. I could be wrong. I don't know any Bible passages that are commands for extroverts and introverts. I could be wrong. There's some Greek. I don't know all of it, but I'll go check again just to make sure. But I don't know any passages that are, okay, extroverts, you do this. Introverts, y'all do this. And the two shall never meet. If we make excuses and we enable people, it treats correction as something unloving. Like, I think there are people who think correcting people is unloving. It's like, well, we want to give people grace. You take advantage of grace too far, though, it no longer becomes grace. It becomes wrath. It's not unloving. God says correction produces character. Here's what he says in Hebrews 12.5 about his correction of those of us who are sons and daughters. He says this. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5 through 11. And he said, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is a crazy statement in light of the way people process parenting today. Like parenting discipline affects their kids' psychological realities and some parents won't do it. And then their kids are all over the place. 
He says, besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then my favorite verse out of all of these, because this is the most true, not that all of these aren't, but this one, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather present, rather pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's, no, there's nothing fun about getting corrected. You heard me say last week, a whisper's too loud if you don't want to hear what somebody has to say. But when you start to grow from it, you start to think about it, say, you know what, yeah, I probably could. Let me go back and ask for forgiveness for this, or let me go after this. You get trained. Righteousness all of a sudden becomes you grow. There's no one in this room who's a genuine Christian that has grown without receiving and applying correction, rebuke, reproof. But almost all of us get offended immediately when it happens, whether it's in a sermon or if it's in a counseling situation. I used to say this all the time. I'd rather you be offended at something I said than God be offended at something you did. So I'll take the heat. Because I love you enough to say you're just wrong. Do you recognize yourself here? Are you the enabler? Is that you? Maybe not. On the flip side, we can be too eager to correct people. In our spirits, we just be like, man. <laughs> Looking around like, man. Them pants are a little too tight. That you gonna, yeah. Look at, wow, he don't got no joy in worship. Like, she's, okay, yeah, all right, let me. You taking notes about who you want to talk to rather than. These are people that are eager to correct, got a critical spirit, real discerning about what everybody else is doing. Find fault with everything and everyone except themselves. Judgmental. Just eager, looking for something to say. Looking, waiting. Like why you, why you do that? Happens the most with our kids. Man, we want our kids to obey God better than we ever have. And we'll just correct them. We want new believers. We're discipling a new, someone's a new Christian, and you're discipling them. And they still got struggles, and we're all ready to bust everything they're doing. As if you didn't need time to grow. Ready to act like they, man, they, they new Christians. They're young. They're babies in Christ like this. You expect different things from a toddler than a teenager. From a teenager to an adult, you just have different expectations. But we're just eager to correct. Boom, 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 boom. I remember one time being in this counseling situation. These three pastors were correcting me. And they told me for like almost two hours all the stuff that I was doing. Some of it I was like, man, just, nah, I don't believe that. <laughs> because you telling me my motive, what my heart was, I was like, you don't know that. But I ain't say nothing. I took it to the chin. And then at the end, I'm talking about this joint was ridiculous. 
at the end, here's what they said to me. After two hours of nothing but correction, telling me all this stuff about myself. I don't know nothing about me at this point. I don't know what, I don't know nothing. I don't even, I don't know, I forgot my social security number. I ain't know nothing at this point. I was just like, dag, I'm not even, I mean, am I? I was like, man, I'm pinching myself. Like, golly, who, where, where am I? These dudes, after three, two hours of correcting me, said this at the end. But are you aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he saved you. And so at first I said, yeah. And then I was like, no, actually, I'm not. I'm aware of the gospel, but not coming from y'all. And they had more concerns for whatever. But, you know, I'm a gangster. So at that point, I was like, all right, let's go. Got my strap, ready to shoot back. That didn't go well. But you don't correct people for four hours and think they're just going to be like, okay. I correct hard, but not that long, if I need to. This is pervasive. Pervasive in the New Testament, eager to correct. And you know who did it the best? The Pharisees. Man, they couldn't wait to correct. Y'all remember this in Mark 2? The Pharisees were criticizing Jesus and his disciples for healing or performing actions on the Sabbath. They had this thing called the Mishnah. This was a a separate, like, literary document that was based on all these oral traditions that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was like 600 and something laws that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. I mean, if you sneezed, that was working to them. You couldn't do nothing. On the Sabbath day, you just froze. It was like everybody was a mob. They played freeze tag well on something. You couldn't move. And so Jesus was like, why do y'all, why do you teach these people this and you do the opposite? If if your ox falls down into a ditch, won't you call some friends and help you? According to their law, that was working. You can't do that. But they would do it, right? So he's saying, you guys are hypocrites. And in Mark 2, 24, it says, look, but the Pharisees said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This is what they did. They created all of these. They corrected people so much that people didn't even recognize the Savior when he came. They were so beaten down and corrected. That's why I said Jesus felt he, he had compassion on them because they were like a shepherd, a sheep without a shepherd. They had been corrected so much, people didn't even recognize the Lord. And unfortunately, neither did they. In Luke 5, 30, Jesus's Pharisees are criticizing him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's chilling. He wasn't there teaching. It said Jesus was reclining at the table. And the Pharisees were like, man, what is he doing? Why is he eating with these people? Ritual hand washings. Mark 7, Matthew 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, they confronted Jesus because the disciples were hungry and they were going through the field and grabbing grain off of the, in the grass and eating some of it, which was lawful in the, in the, in the Mosaic law. You could do that. And they were like, why aren't they, why aren't they washing their hands before they eat? So why do you disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
And Jesus said, it's not what goes in the mouth that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. He says the uncleanness is already here. It's not if your hands are dirty. You misunderstand the law. But to them, this was our tradition. It wasn't why are you going against the Mosaic law. It was the tradition of the elders. In Romans 14, we talked about this when we did Romans a couple years ago. Disputable matters. Romans 14, Paul is addressing believers who were judging one another over matters like eating certain foods or observing special days. He says, why are you? So he says this in, in Romans 14, 2 and 3. He says, one person eats, believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So why are you guys correcting each other for stuff that's not even biblical? Like, God doesn't care about that. If he believes that, cool. It's not sinful. If he believes that, cool. It's not sinful. Why are you correcting that? People are just ready. Like, <laughs> when we correct people too much, it's often because they're offending us. They're offending us. And when that's true, when we're correcting people because they're offending us, we want our correction to be taken as seriously or more serious than the Bible. It's our own tradition of the elders, our preferences, our own traditions of the elders. Or there may be genuine corrections, but, man, you got to give people space. I mean, we used to be in these groups, these, these like, accountability groups, and we would meet weekly. And you'd share something pretty serious one week. One week, you'd share something serious. And guys would correct you and care for you, whatever we called it, right? The whole meeting. The next week, the next week, just a week later, come back. And guys want to update on how you did, how you been doing. And they'd be like, well, it was just a week. So it may take a little longer than a week for me to see considerable growth. But here's one thing I'm doing. And it, it was almost this expectation, like, hey, bro, you got to be like, tomorrow and it's like uh that never happens never happens when we start to think that our correction should be taken as serious or more serious than the bible we start to think that our correction is what changes people you start thinking that they, people change when you correct them news flash no they don't they don't. If you're a Christian, you change because the Holy Spirit brings about a sense of conviction and you're like, I want to grow. Now, God can use your correction, but people don't change because you correct them. I've been a pastor for 15 years in this church. I've said things to people that I think were clear, they agreed with them, and didn't change a bit. And when I stand before the Lord, I'm not giving an account of whether people obeyed. I'm giving an account of if I said you got to obey. Some of those people left. Okay. You can't grow here. Then you shouldn't go here. I understand. I get it. But correction from me doesn't change people. God does. But God uses that correction. He uses it. So he commands us to do it. It works in part with what he's doing. 
But we start to think that all correction changes people. And without even knowing it, we believe we're the Holy Spirit. Don't forget Genesis 3, right? We talked about this last week. Don't forget Genesis 3. Satan said to Eve, you'll be like God. Deciding what's good and evil. Well, what role does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? To bring conviction about righteousness, about good and evil. The Holy Spirit reminds us what good and evil is. So when we start thinking that our correction is how people grow, then we think that we're the Holy Spirit and that people will grow from our correction. We need to remember the definition of good and evil that we're imitating, not the one we're insinuating. Is this you? Are you eager to correct? Correcting people a lot. There's always something not right. And never think that, man, if something is not always right to you, you are the common denominator. It could mean something's not right with you. Maybe this isn't you. Third, the exonerated. We touched on this a lot last week, but I didn't call it the exonerated. We talked about good versus godly. But the exonerated compare themselves to others, often to the person that is correcting them, and then puts the blame on them, on others. The exonerated are people who are just never wrong. No matter what you bring up, they're just never wrong. And keep in mind, the exoneration is self-inflicted. It's not everyone thinks that way. You're just never wrong. You're never wrong. The exonerated will offer alternatives to the correction. It's like, no, I'm just, you just misunderstood what I said. Or you misquoted me. You misheard what I said. Uh, maybe. But every time, fam? If you're always misunderstood, then you need to learn how to explain better. The exonerated will question the motives of people bringing the correction. They'll question the motive. Why are you bringing this up? And if your motive isn't perfect, then it's like, oh, you need to check yourself. Okay, I'll do that after you check yourself. I'll do that, but you got to check yourself too. They question the motives of the one bringing the correction, or they don't like the way the correction is brought. Don't like the way you said it. You know, if you just said it like this, nah. <laughs> you just don't like that it was said. The exonerated make a lot of excuses instead of take responsibility. They divert attention from what is what they do and put it back on what others do. But is the exonerated's favorite word. Yeah, I got some areas to grow in, but. And then that but is usually boomerang. Back to you, though. But you also, you do it too. You do, you do this. The exonerated are not trying to imitate God. They just believe that they're a better, good person than you. So they don't do things that's wrong. When my kids were little, I taught them that if they needed to, that they needed to correct their dad. And that's not normal for kids to do that to their parents. So I would periodically ask them questions like, hey, how can I grow? 
and being a better dad. You know. And I remember one day, I was going with one of my sons in the D.C. We were going to this camera store. And I just said, hey, so question for you. How, how do you think I can grow in being a better dad? While my son was like, I think I can help you, Poppy. <laughs> I thought he was going to be like, oh, I mean, I don't know you, you know. You're a good dad. My son was like, I think I can help you, Poppy. I got you. I got you. Thank you for asking. I got you. No, he wasn't doing that, but he was answering honestly. And he gave me some of the best correction. This is what he said to me. He said, Pop, you know how you always tell us, like, we got to be tough and not be so emotional? And I said, yeah. He said, I think you got to be emotional sometimes and not tough. And my eyes, they watered. And I said, son, that's some of the best correction I've gotten. Well done, daughter, well done. Thank you, son. Thank you. Treated him to something. Thank you. Always be willing to do that. It's not comfortable for kids to tell their parents that, but I wanted him to know. You got to correct your dad. You got to correct your mom. I'm not above that. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Now, if I'm angry, don't do it in that moment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> got to bob and weave. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Wait till he's calmed down. He's watching the game. Hey, Poppy, after the game, son. Now, Bob and Weave. I wanted to do it because you know what? It's easy for parents. It's easy for pastors. It's easy to be like, nah, nah, nah. I'm your, you're my child. Like, I, uh-uh. If I'm a believer and the people who live with me the most see something, oh, I want you to say it. You know why? Because I want to honor the Lord. Never being wrong is not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of a serious lack of self-awareness. It's not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of a lack of self-awareness. Here's what Proverbs 12, 15 says about this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despises his father's instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is prudent. A fool. Now this one is his father's correction, but a fool despises correction. A fool. Why are you a fool? Because that's one of the primary means in the way we grow. Time doesn't permit me to say this because I have other things to get to, but John chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 to 47, was a back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus said to them, look, you guys are not children of Abraham. You're dishonoring the Look, What you talking about? Our father is Abraham. He said, your father's the devil. They just kept exonerating themselves. Now, we do this. We do that. We do this. We do this. You're the one. You're, you have a demon. It's like, nah, I cast them out, though. Let me tell you why every person, every person in this room should never exonerate themselves completely because there's no one in this room who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Maybe ever, but let's just say not all the time. 
So the two greatest commandments, we are perpetually in sin against God by not obeying. So he is perpetually forgiving us. We never, some people don't even strive to do those things. It's not even a consideration. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every time someone shares a thought with you, they're right. That's not what I'm saying either. But if no one is ever right, then you are forever wrong because Jesus is the only one who is sinless. He's the only one. If you're an exonerator, you're in a dangerous place. You're betraying Jesus because you're sinless like him and you're just not. I'm just not. We'll never get to a place of maturity where to some degree we can't adjust and correct. Now some of us it may be harder to see what because we don't live life with everyone. But if you're the exonerated, you exonerate yourself. You need to remember when Jesus told the disciples, one of you will betray me. They didn't say, I bet you it was Judas. This dude is wild. <laughs> That's what we would say today. It's probably him. You know what, though? John sometimes be questionable, though. Like, remember that time when John? Now, nah, you know what they said? Is it I? Is it me? Hey, John, ask him, is it me? Am I the one? They were worried about themselves. There's a healthy and a biblical worrying about myself. Are you the exonerated? Is that you? Which one of these are you? And what do we do? How do we get out of these things? How do we change from being, if one of these three are you? And if you're none of the above, sweet. Praise God for that. How do we get out of this? What do we do? Well, Jesus corrected, and he corrected his disciples a lot. He was with the, his disciples got corrected more than the Pharisees. We read the stories of the Pharisees, but Jesus was with the disciples all the time. And these dudes were just, they had foot and mouth disease. They were just saying wild stuff all the time. <laughs> if we're going to grow in this, we've got to understand the substance and motive of Jesus' correction. And there was one theme to what Jesus said all the time when he corrected his disciples. One thing. Remember when he calmed the storm in Luke 8, he was taking a nap. They woke him up terrified. He was tired. Jesus was the hardest working man in show business. And what did he say to them? After he calmed the storm, what did he say? You of little faith. Why did you doubt? When Peter was walking on the water in Matthew 14, Peter, they couldn't even see Jesus. It was dark and it was windy. And they saw someone walking and were terrified and said, it's a ghost. That shows you that they believed in ghosts back then. And Jesus said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And here's what Peter said, Lord, if it is you, I can hear you, but I can't see you. I don't know if that's you. Demons be switching their voices up too, Lord, you know. So he said, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. So Jesus said, come. He says, Peter gets out of the boat. Now, keep in mind, he was a fisherman, so he knew how deep the waters were. Caught a couple of bass and trout from there earlier. Walks to Jesus. All right? He knows, whoa, I'm walking. Walks to Jesus, stands in front of him, looks around at the winds and waves, and becomes afraid, and he starts sinking. 
Peter wasn't even thinking, wait a minute, I just walked out of the boat to Jesus, and now I'm standing in front of him, and I'm afraid now? And so Jesus said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The healing of the boy with the demon, Mark 9, 14 to 29, after the transfiguration. Jesus comes down. They can't cast a demon out of the boy. And he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And after healing the boy, they asked him, why couldn't they do it? And he said, because of your little faith. For I say to you truly, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say this mountain move, and it will move from it. Jesus had one goal in mind for his correction, especially for the disciples. One goal. He corrected them for one reason only. And if it's not clear what that is yet, then let's look at Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11 through 14. This is the infamous passage where Paul opposes Peter, corrects Peter in front of everyone. Listen to what happens here, though. But when the Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul's not saying this to boast. He's just being honest. Because he stood condemned. He stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So these people were people that thought Jews and Gentiles shouldn't interact because they're not circumcised. And Peter was like, nah, man, we, they, they part of the family. But when he saw them, he was afraid, fear of man, and he walked away. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The one reason that Paul corrected Peter is because his conduct was not in step with the gospel. He didn't correct them because of his preferences. He said it's not in step with the gospel. You are not honoring the Lord in your action. He called him condemned. What we often get wrong and why we're often afraid to challenge is because our motive is wrong. Our responsibility is to try to show someone what we're seeing, but if they don't see it or even get offended, that has nothing to do with us. Our job is to try to say things in a way that people can receive them, but I'm not responsible if you get offended. Unless I can, unless you can prove it's proven that I was trying to offend you, I'm not responsible if people get offended. It's not my job to say everything with kid gloves so that no one, is, no, I want you to feel that sting. Because the spirit convicts and that sting will be what leads to, okay, let me, let me see what the Lord is really saying. I'm not going to ignore people who I think are playing around in a room. I'm not like some pastors, I'm going to call you out, but I'm not going to ignore you. And then in that, I, I, I run the risk of offending people, but I'll take it. Because this is what we do. This is the community that we live in. It's part of our community. But when we get offended at people for not receiving correction, it reveals that we think we're responsible to change people, not God. Listen, correction is not a power that we wield that makes people grow. It's a responsibility that we do because we want people to grow. You can listen to the message again. <laughs> correction is not a power that we wield 
that makes people grow. Even as a pastor, I can't force you to grow. There are people that, there are people that, there are people that just perpetually won't grow. And so I just told them, I don't think you should meet with me. I will tell people, like, I, I think you should get discipled by somebody else. And they get offended. It's like, but you don't apply to what you hear. Like, I'm not obligated. I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to meet with you every week for a year, for three or four years. My job is to try to help all of us, including myself, first and foremost, appropriate the gospel, apply it. My job isn't just to be meeting with people to meet. Like, confession and obedience are not the same thing. Confession is not repentance. Confession just acknowledges that repentance, obedience needs to happen. Have you ever had a good time when you cry before the Lord, you weep, and you feel like, man, that was a good moment, I really confessed my sin, and then you went and did the very thing you sinned, you were crying about? That's not necessarily obedience. The problem is, if we're being honest, the problem is that many of us at times don't really care if people grow in the Lord. We just want people to know we're growing in annoyance. <laughs> we're not as focused. Like most of us, most of us do not think, hey, man, I'm really concerned they're not honoring the Lord here. <laughs> we don't think that way about our children, our spouses. We're just annoyed. We're tired of filling the blank. So why do you correct people? Is it because you genuinely want them to honor the Lord and you're concerned that they're not? Or is it that you're frustrated that they're genuinely dishonoring you and you want them to stop? We either struggle with comparing ourselves to Jesus and so it's hard to expect others to, so we kind of just you getting on my nerves, not, hey, this is actually dishonoring the Lord. Or we expect people to be like Jesus, even if we're not. So what do we do? How do we grow? How do we correct each other and grow in this? There's two questions that you should ask if you think there's a sin issue in someone's life. Two questions. You should ask yourself if you see something. First question is, is this sin? Is this a sin issue? Is this a sin issue? And the second question is, what am I most concerned about here? Is this a sin issue? And what am I most concerned about? Because if you're honest and you evaluate yourself, you will see, like me at times, your correction, particularly of your closest relationships, is because you, they're just, you're just tired of them. You're irritated. They may not even be sinning, but they're sinning to you. So is this a sin issue, and what am I most concerned about? If it's a sin issue, if it is a clear sin issue, here's how you'll know it. Identify it biblically, not culturally. If it's a sin issue, use biblical language, not cultural language. Don't tell people they're dropping the ball. What does that mean? They don't even play sports like that. Dropping the ball, what verse is that? Maybe in like the newest, some new translation that somebody used that just came out with to try to be hip. And Peter dropped the ball when he said Jesus. Don't use cultural language. Use biblical language. 
Don't tell people you're being annoying. What biblical, what verse is annoying? And the wrath of God is coming because of the annoyingness of, what are we talking about? You got to use biblical language. Say, brother, I think you were angry or arrogant when you said that. I think you were self-righteous when you made this comment. Use biblical language, not cultural. If you don't use biblical language, don't expect people to respond biblically. Don't sin against them when confronting their sin. Oh, man. You ever tell somebody, hey, look, I'm getting tired of. Y'all need to stop now. And the Lord is like, so do you. You angry at them being angry. Or you're sinning against people self-righteous because you don't do that. You don't struggle with that. You don't sin against them when confronting their sin if it's a real sin issue. Try to explain how it doesn't honor the Lord. There isn't a person in this room that hasn't sat with me in one-on-one counseling that I haven't explained that. Most of the people that I correct haven't directly offended me. So I'm just speaking to men. This doesn't honor the Lord. And I'll even ask, so how do you think this honors the Lord? Like, what way do you see that? And then if they can't make it, then I'll say, I just don't think it does. This doesn't honor the Lord. I want to explain how it doesn't honor the Lord. Acknowledge that that's the reason you're bringing it up. And always tell people, look, I could be wrong. Go before the Lord. Anyone who's counseled with me one-on-one has heard me say, look, feel free to push back, disagree. This is what I'm seeing. Feel free to disagree, push back. If it's a sin issue, obedience should be appropriate to the maturity of the person. I don't expect a toddler to act like a teenager or a teenager to act like a, someone who's in their 30s. It's just different. There are levels of maturity, and some things are going to be like, you know what? Yeah, they're just not. Some people just don't have the, the, the I said this in a message previously. I think it was last week. The thing is, in the world, you will work really hard to make accomplishments. You'll go to school for 12 years to be a doctor. You'll get your master's to do this. You'll get that. There are people in here with PhDs, intelligent people. But very few people have a PhD in sanctification and obedience. Because we don't want to do the work that it takes to grow. We expect God to zap us. And then when we don't zap, we feel like we're not growing and it's God's fault or the church's fault or this is fault and that's fault. And maybe it's just your fault. There are times it's just my fault. It's just my fault I'm not growing. If it's a sin issue, identify, it's most important, identify biblically, not culturally. Use biblical language and explain to people why you think it doesn't honor the Lord. And tell people, go before the Lord. That's, that's a way of just saying, look, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I could be wrong. Even if you, there are times I know I'm not wrong. I know I'm not wrong, but I'll say, look, push back. If you feel differently, let me know. Go before the Lord. If it's a sin issue. If it's not a sin issue, if it's not a sin issue, then it might need to be a non-issue. But if it's a, not a sin issue, but it's causing you some duress, then preface your correction by saying, look, I know this isn't a sin issue, but could you, and then share it. Preface it. Listen, I know this isn't a sin issue. I just, could you not chew like that? 
know what I'm saying? Let's keep it 100. You know how sometimes you just be like, man, could you, could you cover your nose when you sneeze? I know it's not a thing. I'm choosing things that are really trivial, but some of y'all do your own. You got stuff that you, you like, man, could you spray the bathroom when you? There's no passage that says do that. To be honest, there's no passage that says put the toilet seat down, but I don't want no problems for no ladies in here because. Just preface it. I know this isn't a sin issue, but could you, would you mind, take the, take the, Take the level of it off because when you act like it's a sin issue and it's just your preference, then it gets confused. Like, what's actual obedience and what isn't? What passage am I applying right now? You can't use scripture when it's your preference. People try. But quoting a Bible verse is not using the Bible. Using the Bible means you use it the way God intended. Preferences are often not sin issues to God. They're sin issues to us, and remember that. Remember that. Preferences are like love languages, right? That's what a preference really is, a love language. I just don't don't like when you do this. Could you do this instead of that? You know, couples get married, and then they're like, okay, well, I grew up doing the dishes this way. And and then you fight over this, and after a few years, you realize, man, who really cares, man? Just let it get clean. Get you some good dishwashing detergent. It'll clean it if you get the right detergent. Preferences should not demand a person not be who they naturally are. When it's not a sin issue, there might just be quirks that people have. You can't demand that people not be who they naturally are. That's just unrealistic. Hey, can you? I'm sorry, I know this isn't a sin issue, but could you not be a people person? I really don't want you to. How are you going to tell some? Hey, this is, a, this is a, not a sin issue. But could you not wear the jerseys of the opposing team of the Redskins when we're playing? I think that's from the Lord. That is from the Lord. From the Lord. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm telling you right now. Y'all know I'm just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> Listen, preferences should be something that's doable. You can't tell somebody, hey, can you not invite people over? Can you not do the can, That's just, nah, you just got to, that's not, we're, we're called to be servants, not selfish servants. Not all preferences should be followed. Some preferences are actually sinful or would cause harm to that person. You cannot do that. Siri got a lot of preferences right now. She's listening to all of them. Listen, when you have preferences, the one thing you have to remember is that there are preferences that people have that you don't need. And they have to tolerate you. They have to tolerate me. They're just things that you do too. What we call them quirks, idiosyncrasies. Preferences may serve you, but you have to understand that it's not, if it's not a biblical conviction, that person may not feel the same way you do about it. You cannot make your preferences the other person have to agree. They may choose to serve that preference, but if it's not a sin issue, you cannot make the person do it. Now, a person should, if they love you and they care, but they, okay, that's something that's doable, but we have to be careful that our preferences are not imposing my personal conviction on you. 
our preferences are largely Romans 14 issues. And we have to remember that when we're bringing up our preferences. So why do you correct people? How do you correct people? Do you only correct people in your heart, judge them from a distance? Don't say anything to them. Then you end up getting bitter at them for something they don't even know about. There's so many ways this happens in the church, in this church. And it's not hard to grow in it. It's just going to require a level of courage. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't, don't swing to the other pendulum. Don't walk up to people and say, hey, after hearing Pastor Kurt's message, there's some stuff I haven't said to you for a long time, so you can, can we go to lunch this week? It's like, don't do that. Don't do that. I ain't talking about bringing, talking about for right now. Don't tell me no emails like, hey, Pastor Kurt, now I got the courage to really tell you how I really feel. Good, do that, do that. But I might have a couple of things too. Like, I ain't got the information to expose that situation to the whole nation, but I'm not. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. Because there are times people say things about you, and you know that's not really the real situation. But you choose not to say anything back sometimes. It's like, all right. People share stuff, that their preferences, or they're accusing you of things. like, ah, okay, I'm going to let it go. But as a church, as Solid Rock Church, I'm not talking about our church right now. I'm not talking about the church. As this church, we have to grow in this. We have to grow in it. This is something you must believe until you leave. We don't grow without some form of correction. But we don't grow when people are always correcting us. And we don't grow if we never receive correction. We have to figure this out. If you apply some of these principles, this is what I did. I was like, okay, is this a sin issue? Okay, what am I most concerned about? There are times if I couldn't genuinely say I'm concerned about them not honoring the Lord, I just wouldn't bring it up. There are times I've just overlooked a lot of stuff. I'm just like, you know what, man, I ain't going to bring it up. I'm not going to bring it up because I think I'm just. Or there were times I didn't discipline my kids because I knew I was angry. I was offended. They might, they were little, might have been just acting crazy. And it wasn't sinful. They was just acting like, it's not sinful for your kid to knock over the, the milk and it spills all over the floor. And you're like, <laughs> mad. One, because you don't got no milk for your cereal. Right. Right. Amen. Two, you don't want to clean. They too young to clean it up right. <laughs> now, when they was little, you was like, man. <laughs> That's when you be all prophetic. I can't wait till you old enough to. Gift of prophecy. Prophet lying. I mean, when y'all get older, I'm gonna, you can't, you know, you can't get angry. I mean, you can get offended, but it's like, okay, I'm not going, I'm not, it's like, just, just go away, please. Cow gone, take me away. For those of you who didn't know. Our preferences, we have to be careful, but we have a responsibility. And the reason why we correct people is because they're not in step with the gospel. We want to see people grow in the Lord. That's it. It's not because you offended me or you're not. Because I want to see you honor the Lord. And if I can't biblically explain that, then don't say it. Because it could be you're just offended. 
That's why Bible corrects. Jesus didn't say, he said, you little faith. Why do you have to have faith? Why did he always say, you have little faith? You know why he said that? All the time. Because without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. So Jesus went to, you're not pleasing God because you don't have faith. He always went to, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? It was always faith for Jesus. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he knows that. So he said, I want you to please God, so I want you to have faith. Some of us, some of us need to grow in getting to that point before we can bring correction. Because if we're being honest, some of us aren't trying to imitate God either. And so we need to make sure that we're trying to imitate God so that we can grow in that conviction that we want others to do the same. I want to correct because I want people to grow in the Lord, not because I'm growing in annoyance. It doesn't please God. But it's a part of the way he works with us. It's a part of the command that we work with others. And this is something you must believe until you leave. Correction will stop, presumably, in heaven. I don't know. The Lord might be like, Kurt, cut it out now. (laughs) But I was just, I don't know. But while we're here, we do know. Which one? Are you? And will you take this seriously first in you and then helping others? If you don't care if people grow in the Lord and they grow in the noise, don't say anything. Make sure you, you are saying, man, I want to bring this up because I'm concerned for them growing in the Lord. And if you never get to that point, don't use it as an excuse. Well, I just don't know if I'm, then that means it's still a, it's still a you thing. We have to grow. We have to grow. Shift our thinking. I want to imitate the Lord. And when you do that, in all seriousness, you can handle any, even if you don't like the correction, there's no one that corrects you that is saying anything worse than who you really are. No one. There's stuff that people think, that you think, that they don't know about. They only can see this. The Lord sees all of it. There's no correction I've ever received, even if it was wrong that comes close to the evil that I really have in my heart. And neither do you. Let's grow in this because it'll make us stronger, whether you're in this church or any church. Marriages would be revolutionized if this happened. Parenting would be revolutionized. Interpersonal relationships would be different if people were like, hey, I want to grow in this because I want people to honor the Lord. I need to stop correcting so much. Some of us should and need to ask people for forgiveness for being one of these three. It'll soften your heart if you do. And you'll be trained in righteousness over time. Believe until you leave. Father, we thank you for just the reality of your word. Lord, I pray that because you're the one who brings about conviction and you bring the best application, the best that I can do is offer sort of a broad stroke, but you bring about the best application for us specifically. So I pray that you would help people to know, first of all, to take seriously this responsibility. Secondly, to apply the principles to themselves first. 
And thirdly, when appropriate, apply them to others. But first, Lord, I, I just ask, Lord, that you would give people the courage to not just agree with what was said today, but to actually go back, think about it first. I'm not saying that there, you might not bring examples to them, but I doubt it. But you might not. But Lord, I pray that people would first say, Lord, is it I? Which one of these is me? And then they would go to the appropriate people to ask for forgiveness. Lord, even though you know that this is a different message later in this series, it is to me, it's outlandish how often professing believers, whether they're husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings, co-workers, that don't ask each other for forgiveness when they sin against each other. It is incredible to me how widespread that is. They just don't ask each other. When we don't ask each other for forgiveness, our hearts are hardened to our own sinfulness and we become exonerated. We exonerate ourselves because we think that we're a better good person than the person bringing something up to us. But if we look vertical and say, Lord, yeah, I'm not you. I'm not obeying you. This was unloving. This was this. We don't need to be offended because our, we're way more sinful than any correction that we've ever received. But we're also completely forgiven because we have faith in you. You don't correct us to make us feel bad. You correct us so that we feel righteous, grow in righteousness. We're worthy of all correction. That's biblical. That's true. And you'll use it to help us grow for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Brady, you want a mic? Yep, yep. Thank you for that word. I, that was it was convicting for me, and you know, not think we all have things to think about now. Oh, um, there's a lot I of things coming in. Um, some of them are related, so I'm going to try and group some of them together sure. here. Um, the game's away today, so you can. We got a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> away game today. All right. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what you spoke about this morning focused on us giving correction. Um, there's a couple questions in here on how do we open our hearts to receive correction? Um, how do we think about that and hear from others in that, in, in that process? Yeah, so if you're receiving correction, um, I think first things first is what, what, what I kind of said towards the end. I think you're, you're more sinful. You have to believe. So it's Matthew 18, 21 to 35, the parable of the merciful servant, right? You've just sinned against God and been forgiven more than you'll have to forgive anyone. So there's a sense where my default position is that, well, I know that I'm capable of. So I know for me personally, if someone brings something to me, I start with, well, I'm capable of that. Yeah. I might even do that. And then I want to know, did I, do I think I did that in this situation? So I think we have to, one, position ourselves. Like, do you have an accurate view of yourself? You know, in Hebrews 5.14, we've talked about this verse a lot. We're talking about, um, but solid food is for the mature, right? For those who have trained themselves by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil, right? You guys know that verse, right? There are two primary ways that you train yourself to distinguish between good and evil. There's just two ways. One, it's looking at other people in their sin. And you know, like, oh, that's wrong. Look at that. Look at that. Wow, look at that. Like I was joking around earlier. Man, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. You can figure out what sin is by the other way is you train your, by looking at your own attitudes. You start thinking about your own thoughts, your own heart, your own action, because you know what you're thinking and feeling when other people don't. 
right? You start looking at that and you realize, and that was basically what the Pharisee and tax collector did. The Pharisee, he defined good and evil by what everybody else was doing. The tax collector defined it by what he was doing. Lord, forgive me. I'm a so I think you need to grow in that. There is no one that is above correction. No one. And I think, so I start there first and foremost. I think second, too, I think like sometimes like, like ask the question like, what's my relationship with the person correcting me? Because often it's coming from someone who actually cares about you. You know, like I'm not talking about cancel culture. Like I make videos, I have somewhat of a public persona. On, I don't care what those people think. They don't know me. They're judging you from a video or something you said. And cancel culture is, is they're these people. They're the fit, quick to just tell you what you did is wrong. And be, people be writing dissertations back and forth. It's like, fam, this is a YouTube video, bro. I'm not going back and forth with you in the comment. Make your own video. I'll subscribe to your channel. Maybe. Right? So it's like, I, I just think, but does, if the person is bringing it up to you actually cares about you, why are you offended at that? Like, I think if this is your spouse or your child or someone that you know cares about you, I think there are people that don't care. They come up to you and share thoughts with you because they think it's their responsibility. Cool. You're not obligated to apply what everything you hear says, but I think you have this thing, okay, I'm capable, I'm capable of this. Let me, two, what's my relationship with this person? Do they really love me? Even if I don't like what they're saying, I don't know this person loves me, though. And then three, I just think, how else do I grow? Like, there's just no, we just don't grow, like, without, whether we're corrected from the word or corrected from, you just don't grow without it. Sermons are made to correct. When I teach, I always think if people don't get cut in some way, shape, or form, I'm not doing my job. Because Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is a double-edged sword cutting bone and marrow. Far be it from me to teach and no one feel cut. I think I'm being unfaithful to the word. Some people don't want to do that at all. Hey, I don't want to offend nobody. Cool. I'm not trying to offend people either, but I want us to grow. So I think those are some ways that I would go after that. But listen, there's no secret to this. There's no secret. It just, it just requires, you got to renew your mind. You got to renew your mind and remind yourself of these things. Don't just take what I say. Go to the scriptures and read things. Renew your mind. Don't just take what I say. You can disagree with me all day. But I can point you to a verse to back up everything I'm saying just about, apart from the Redskins, when I'm still looking for one. But, like, I just, I think it's just like, nah, go before the Lord and just say, like, listen, look, do this as an exercise. Go through just the letters of Paul. Just go through a couple of, just pick any letter. The two least correcting letters in, in Paul are Philippians, Philippians, actually Philippians, Colossians are the two least corrective letters. Like Paul was like, I'm excited what I hear about you, this joy, I'm loving. Take those two letters and go through and highlight, is there any correction from Paul? To the churches that are the two most joyful, obedient churches that Paul wrote. Uh, Philippians and Colossians, and see if you see any correction in there. Just find out what verses is he correcting them. And these are the two church. Galatians, don't go there. There's a lot of correction in Galatians. Don't go to Galatians. He'll get to Galatians 3. You'll be like, dad, he was going there. First Corinthians, don't go there. First Corinthians. That whole letter's correction. From verse 110 to the end of chapter 15. Don't go to Philippians. You'll be like, oh, this is too much. You'll be overwhelmed. But just go to, there's correction everywhere. But it's not always like, ah. But sometimes it's like, hey, let me remind you. Let me admonish you. Let me, let me instruct you. Let me warn. Those are some things I would do. Good question. Thank you.
Um, so there's a lot of what we talked about was in the context of the church and other believers. Um, how should we process things like correction when it's with unbelievers or with um, people who claim to be believers but may not be walking with the Lord right now? Oof. That's a large subset of people. So if they're unbelievers, I mean, just again, please check the Bible, right? With unbelievers, the two strongest verses that I know of are 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26, and 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. All right? I had, I had, I had them here, and I just skipped over them because we were just moving. But I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5 now. Since y'all asked, I'm going to read it. I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm sorry. Here's what he says to the church. This is after he told them to correct the dude that was sleeping with his father's wife. Beginning in verse 9. That baby got the spirit filled, but that's it. Mahalia, y'all doing something right. Y'all doing something right. That baby is screaming out to the Lord. But here's what he says. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5. This changed, this changed the way I saw the, what, the whole culture war theology, ideology that people be going after. This just to me was like, man, I think y'all are wilding. This in 2 Timothy 2. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now listen to this, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil from among you. And then 2 Timothy 2, 26, you heard me read it earlier. But the Lord's servant must be patient, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The next verse says, perhaps God may grant them repentance as they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Those are the two primary verses that I think talk about that. So here what Paul's saying is, I don't think you're supposed to be correcting the morality, the immorality of the world because they don't know Jesus. I, I, I can't stand when like these Christian influencers make all these videos about like what Beyonce is doing or what Lizzo is doing or what this person is doing or what. I don't know if they're saved. I don't get any indication that they are. So I'm not going to correct I mean, I, Of course, that's like low hanging fruit. Of course, like that's not what a Christian does. If we correct unbelievers, it's unto the hope of salvation. That's what, that's, what, that's what I see in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying you can't correct. Like, if you're in a conversation or something, you're arguing and you're talking about, I mean, the Redskins ain't no good. I think you should correct that. I think there is a, a place for that. I mean, there's a place for that. But I know, I think when it's unbelievers, I think largely I want to correct their ideas that, that keep them from believing in God. And that's going to be in a conversational setting. Now, there's a place of making a video, reaction video, and responding to what people say, cool. I do that from time to time. But I think, like, largely, like, going after the world is unbiblical. Paul was like, what do I have to do with judging the outsiders? These people need Jesus. This is why 2 Timothy 2, he said, look, perhaps God may grant them repentance. So when it comes to unbelievers, I think we should stay away from correcting them pray for them more, and when we can have conversations, do that. Now, if we have children or family members that are interacting with people and it's 
somewhat challenging, then yeah, you could say something to your loved ones. Be careful about this. I warn my son from time to time if I think I need to. But I think we have a, the church has a fetish with attacking non-Christians. Yeah. And I think we just do that because it puts the emphasis on them and not on us. Yeah. I'm, and the world sees that. They see like we're not like Jesus at all. They see it. And then we say, oh, we're being persecuted. Nah, you're being persecuted. Well, mama, I made it. You know what I'm saying? Like as if you're celebrating somebody blocking you. They could be blocking you because you were being sinful. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to unbelievers, I think Paul said it. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He said, God judges those outside. My responsibility is to people who are inside, professing believers. So to the other half of that, when you're judging, when you need to bring up things to believers, I, I don't know if I, I mean, I kind of said that in the whole message. I'm not sure how to, I mean, I just think if, if the person professes to be, oh, that's right, is believer, but is not bearing fruit, right? They profess to believe, but they're just wilding, right? If you have a relationship with that person, first of all, let me just say this. Do not do this to people in social media. You do not know, there are a lot of people who know who Kirk Kennedy is that don't know me at all. Mm. Kirk Kennedy is a pseudonym. I'm Curtis Allen, right? They don't know me. They know my music. They know this. They watch a couple videos. You don't know me. You don't know my kids' names. You don't know nothing about me but except what I give you. Don't correct people online right. unless you know them because you don't know them. Even if they say something crazy, they, God doesn't need you to remind them. Right. I used to do that. I was like, man, what am I saying this for? Who cares? Mm-hmm. I don't care what these people think in all honesty. But I think if it's someone that's, that you have relationship with and they're not in step with the gospel, I think you have an obligation to bring that up. Yeah. And just say, hey, but here, let me tell you something. The best way to bring things up, I had given these techniques because then people doing it like, I know what you're doing right now. The, <laughs> honestly, humility asks questions, arrogance makes statements. Mm-hmm. Ask a question. Hey, bro, when I, can I ask you a question? When you said this, this I feel like, where, where do you feel like in the Bible it, it, it allows you to do that? Like, there are times I've heard people just say, wow, stuff. Shoot, I'm going out doing this. I hung out. I'm going to the club. I'm doing, they just would name all this stuff. And I'd be like, hey, so where do you feel like the Bible agrees with that? I want to, if I correct people, especially if they're not, like, following the Lord, but they profess to be believers, I think they're going to be the most offended because those are the ones who have made, they compare themselves to being a better good person, not to the scriptures. So I just, I don't want to make my correction of them be about, like, my preference. I want, where do you feel like the Bible agrees with that? I mean, I was going back and forth with this person who was angry at me from a political statement I made. And I just said, hey, brother, what verses inform your political position and inform your, this culture war that you're bringing up? Because I can give you a couple that I think disagree, but where do you feel like, I'm going to ask a question. Let the scriptures correct people. Ask questions so that people have to wrestle with what the Bible says. So one of my favorite questions is with Julie and them gave me a little plaque. Julie said, what fruit of the Spirit is that? That just cuts right to it. To me, if someone professes to be a Christian, they just act like, I don't care with nobody. I ain't letting nobody walk all over me because they're not going to just, I don't. So what fruit of the Spirit is that? Wah, wah. So that's straight Bob Barker. That's it. The price is wrong, fam. What fruit of the Spirit is that? I don't even got to say a lot. What fruit of the Spirit is that? What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? What fruit of the Spirit is that? that so anyway, those are things that I would think about and consider. Thank you. Those are things I've done for years. I do that stuff. I still do that today. I still ask that question. What fruit of the Spirit is that? I ask it of myself first. If you don't ask it of yourself, you won't, it won't have the same effect as if you ask it of others. I've asked myself that, man, what fruit of the Spirit was this, bro? 
Go ahead. So for those of us who are parents um, and we, you know, take a look at what you said this morning and feel mm -hmm. like, yeah, we, we could have been exasperating our kids. 100%. How do we find that balance between giving grace but correction? How do we, and how do we walk back from where we've been exasperating? That's a fantastic kids? question. And that's actually going to be a full sermon later. So I'll just say this now. The first thing you should do, I don't care how old your kids are. I was asking my kids for forgiveness when they had no idea what I was talking about. They would be two and three years old. It was, it was about me cultivating the habit and so that when they grew up, they get it. They understand what that means. And so, because that's going to be a whole sermon later, a whole sermon later um, in the series, start with just asking your kids for forgiveness, even if they're too young to understand what you mean. You want to demonstrate for them. I'm, uh, parents, please listen to me. Please. I have traveled the country, and I have asked kids all over the country as a Christian rap artist, as Royce, as Kirk Kennedy, and I've asked, and the majority of the kids who are de-churched say it was their parents' example. It was the hypocritical nature of their parents. It was... Learn to ask your, learn to be a Christian to your kids before you teach them about the, the, the Christian doctrines. Don't teach them about Christianity before you show them this is what it means to be a Christian. We are not exempt of humbling ourselves, asking for forgiveness to our children because we're in authority over them. Why do you think, I'm a pastor, I'm in authority, I have biblical authority over this church. Why do you all think I constantly say I fail in this too? I do this too, because I am not, I've never taught a sermon that the Lord hasn't said you too, and usually you first because you're going after it, because I'm the one studying it, never. Authority does not mean exemption, and so I would just start with, again, there's going to be a sermon coming up, so I don't want to go, but just start with, let me just start cultivating a, a heart of humility that says, hey, please forgive me, son. My kids wouldn't know what was going on. They wouldn't know what was going on, but they get it now, though. They understand it now if I say that, and they say it back when they're wrong. They get it. I would start there. And there's, uh, there's this whole sermon on this. We're going to really, when I said this series is going to start broad and then get specific, I meant it. When this series is over, every sin issue and whatever the scheme of the devil is for that is going to come out. So there's going to be, so this is, we're just still broad right now. We're hitting big concepts, earthly versus eternity. Good versus godly, right? We're hitting, why do you correct? These are big issues, but we're going to eventually get to the point where, okay, let's talk about you who struggle with lust. Let's talk about when you struggle with anger. What is the devil? What's the scheme of the devil? Let's talk about you when you, we'll get to that. So there's a message coming on parenting for sure. Just start by saying, man, please forgive me. And be specific. I don't say please forgive me to my kids in generalities. I'll be specific. I try to name what I think my motive was. I might say something like, man, son, please forgive me for being irritated and angry at you. You know, I think what I wanted, I just wanted you to not do this or that or whatever, and I wanted that more than I wanted to honor the Lord, and it didn't, it didn't honor you, the Lord, or anyone. So please forgive me for that, son. That didn't honor the Lord at all, and I'm, and I'm wrong. That's my kids will tell you. I say stuff like that. I'll be specific and break it down. I don't talk in generalities. Because I want my kids to believe. And I want them to be like, hey, yeah, my dad will ask me for forgiveness. It doesn't make me the best dad in the world, but it tries to make, I'm just trying to be a faithful one.
um, how, how do we know when we can or should stop bringing correction to a particular person, either because they're not responding or um, something along those lines? Mm. I think, I mean, a lot of that depends on the relationship and what the sin issue is, because some sin issues are serious, man. Like, but I think even, so remember in Mark, I think it was six, Jesus sent the disciples into the villages, right? And he said, go into people's homes. Whoever invites you in, stay with them, right? He said, if they don't accept your word, shake the dust off of your feet, keep it moving, right? Paul did the same thing. He would go to the synagogues first, and then when they reject him, he'd be like, it's a wrap. Wiping the dust off my shoes, I'm going to the Gentiles now. You have proverbs like don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't, don't correct a fool according to his folly, right? There is a point where if a person is unwilling to respond to correction, depending on your relationship and proximity, if they're in your home, it's just going to be different. But if it's a coworker or a relative or someone who's just a Christian, but they're not, then I think you go from saying something to them to saying something about them to God. You just got to pray for them. You just at some point you just got to be like, look, I'm, you know, even as a pastor, I do that. There are people who I just think, all right, well, Lord, I'm, I can't, there's nothing else I can do here. So I'm just going to pray to you and ask you. So I think it depends on the relationship. If they're in your home, it's a little bit more complicated. Or if the sin is of a certain magnitude. But remember, your correction, my correction doesn't change people. It points people that change needs to happen. So on one level, this is the best way to say it. You got to redefine what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is not you say something and people respond to it. That is not faithfulness. Faithfulness is you say something, whether people respond to it or not. And I think sometimes we want people to change. So we'll say stuff like, well, how can I say this? Or how can I say that so people change? We're just not responsible for it. You're not. I've known godly people, godly leaders, pillars in the, like, I know leaders in the evangelical church right now that are really popular whose kids have walked away from the faith. I remember one pastor just confiding in me. Really popular dude. If I said his name, many of you would know him. His kids walked away from the faith. He couldn't understand it. His daughter went off to college, started dating a professor, and just walked away. He couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Wives left him. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. And I was like, brother, you can't make the people in your household believe. You can only be a believer to the people in your household. So that's the best I can say right now. But that question will get more specific as this series goes on. I think based off the time, I think um, there's a couple more questions, but. Um, one more, pick the best one, last okay. one. Um, so some of us may feel motivated by, uh, to correct others when we see that they're hurting themselves or others. Is this a wrong motivation or is that related to what you were saying? about the gravity of the situation. I think if they're hurting themselves and others, they're not in step with the gospel. So the main motive should be, hey, I think they're out of step with the gospel. They're not submitting to the Lord, their actions. That should be the motivation. And if you're hurting others, what, fruit, what, what passage is that? Right? It says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Do good to everyone. It doesn't say hurt people, right? So I think if that's the case, yeah, I think you got to you say something. But re remember... The Lord is not changing people because of you. The Lord will use you, but it might take years before someone actually gets it. 
it's taken years for some of us to just get it. So that's just the reality, all right? But we're going to, this, this is just, we're, we're, we're here. We're going to get to here, and then that stuff will be really, really pointed at these things. All right, let's do the best thing that we can do today is remind ourselves of the ultimate correction that was given to Jesus for our sins. This is the correction that we remember week in and week out because of how significant that it is. This correction was so that we wouldn't be eternally corrected for our sin against God. So this, this, little, this little wafer here is only what we do on, we do this every Sunday, and this is really only for those who believe in Jesus. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, we're grateful that you're here, but we would ask you not to take this and do what we're about to do because it really is about when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't saying do this because you remember that this happened. He said, do this because you